Everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be reading from my semi-autobiographical novel, I'm Just Making It Up As I Go Along and Things Have Not Been Working Out As Well As I Intended, Chapter 9949, Temporary Friends, Part 3, Delinquency, Fugue State. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. This is when you are still in denial and are determined to portray your experience as anything other than a disgraceful episode in your life you need to spend the rest of your waking life atoning for. When you do enter the fugue state, you just stop counting things that matter, and the things that suddenly matter are counted. You realize that the people who are now in your life pay close attention to all security. When you come, when you go, where you keep valuables, if there are any, or what is valuable to them. You blind yourself to objective reality, far more than we commonly do to make our way through our miserable lives while remaining mostly sober. To enter a chemically induced fugue state is to become dependent on the chemicals. Your life becomes static and you cease to function within usual and ordinary parameters, touch points for conversation, Registering of emotion, consideration, except for the paranoid type. I was with these people, my friends, for lack of a better term, while they posed as having some sort of deep, profound wisdom endowed upon them from their travails and subcultural transits. They were wizened at young ages, but as for wisdom... Everyone was whistling in the dark at the same time, and everyone was whistling off-key. The juicy stuff is coming, trust me. This is just a warm-up for how I predicate what comes. There is great danger ahead. And as an aside, believe me, when someone does indeed look out for you, you better show gratitude and never let them down. Someone has been looking out for me. There is no other way to explain how I am still alive. It is a strange feeling to believe that you have been looked out for and at the same time know that nobody is coming to save you and that you have to do everything yourself anyway and you should know all of this in the first place on the outset of life. Some people do and they prosper. Schmucks like me trust their luck and see what happens. I'm deservedly in purgatory. By the way, whoever came up with the term action items out of context of the workplace is owed a debt of gratitude by me because it shows the superficiality and shallowness of thought of those who default to employing that term on a regular basis. You are uninteresting and boring when you use cliches such as that. And this is a telltale marker which informs me of your insipid intellect. The Truman Capote in me crawled out of the corners of my mind to express that sentiment. Anyway, I must make, at this time, the disclaimer that these fictional recollections, which I am certain are subject to dispute, 
are to my best fictional memory accurate and truthful, even though this is a novel, a piece of pure fiction, although I will concede that there is inherent subjectivity and bias in all people's memories, fictional or real, and experiences as they occur in the first place. So my perspective and emphasis might not quite jibe with those described in the narrative, what and whosoever it may be besides my own. That being said, this is a truthful, albeit fictional account, and I'm doing my best to be diplomatic and even-handed in my accounting of this dreadful, wasteful hellscape that my life became and fell into for what seemed like an eternal period of torture. The funny thing is that my life brightened up as soon as I left and got a decent gig elsewhere with much better reliable income, comparatively respectable, honorable, professional, ethical humans, and I am giving a wide breath for many of those as well, but their standards, demeanor, demonstrable integrity, and basic decency were on a far higher plane than the depths I had plumbed or allowed myself to sink to and crawled my way out of. My bad. It really is my personal fault and my personal failings which led me to ignore warning signs that I should have by any reasonable standard heeded. I was searching for something that did not nor ever would exist. As for the actual passage of time, it all instantaneously became a blur, a quite sorrowful, unpleasant, malignant blur. The byline or subtitle for this chapter is this. Religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who have already been there. And this has been attributed to Vine Deloria Jr. There are many different attributions to this. But boy, do I get it. And that little nugget of innocence or ignorance or a combination of both disintegrated a very long time ago. I am not by any means a 12-stepper or anyone who holds those who enjoy a good time and lesser prestige unless it interferes with your ability to effectively manage your life and it intrudes upon mine. I do, however, remain on the wagon at least six to seven months a year, although not all at the same time. I do dry January and then go on the wagon after St. Patrick's Day and stay there until late September when I really should get on back at school. It is just better for me. So I do not claim any higher ground I just had a hard-learned lesson in self-preservation. But I get the sentiment. By the way, the lyrics to the Charlie Daniels hit song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, start off with, The devil went down to Georgia, down as in from above, from the north, and not up from the depths of hell. He was looking for a soul to steal. And the question is, is hell so crowded that he has to do some math and figure out how much space he has to put someone's soul? Or does he just have a lot of free time and does things slowly? He was in a bind cause he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. Well, how is the devil in a bind? Why would he care in the first place? Everything is hell around him. Is he obligated to someone else? He is the devil. Doesn't he make the rules about soul stealing? And he was willing to make a deal, which implies that he is under some sort of quota system and that he reports to someone else, as in a direct report. Now, historically, the only other entity who the devil could possibly report to is God. 
So therefore, the devil works for God and steals souls under a divine quota system. The devil is doing God's work. I'm just saying. So anyway, my friend, the titular chef, start off with the cover job at India Joe's. Now, India Joe's was a restaurant in Santa Cruz, California, and I had visited the place in 1989 by myself. My friend, the titular chef, made an absolutely fantastic duck breast stuffed with andouille, celery, and forcemeat. He actually received applause when he stepped out of the kitchen for a minute on uh, numerous occasions. He made what I snarkily called an ugly sauce for blackened steak. He called it ugly sauce. It was a huge hit. For the overdose victim, everything was a cover job for the drug operation. And by the overdose victim, I mean the titular chef, my friend. I mean, really, it all provided for an extremely flimsy veneer of escapades such as the Grateful Dead New Year's Eve show, the nine bank robberies in one day, the lifelong prison sentence, Ted Koppel, the Santa Cruz pigeons on the ledge from the CIA, the shooting up of blood while waiting for the heroin, and more difficult-to-swallow melodramatic storytelling. The funny thing is that so much of it is actually true, and I witnessed a whole lot of it in real life. Still shake my head in a degree of disbelief to what I witnessed firsthand, but I can't deny it. I saw him wriggle out of handcuffs behind his back while in a hotel room at a small wedding reception. He actually did do that. I took a lot of what he said and reacted to what he said, like everybody we were with a lot of the time, with a jaundiced eye, but son of a bitch, he actually did it. Couldn't believe it, but he did it. And he matter-of-factly said he could do it and was disbelieved until he did it. An off-duty cop who was also a guest just happened to have his handcuffs with him, and he, as disbelieving as the rest of us, cuffed him to test his claim. And he did it in a few seconds right before our eyes. We stood there with our jaws dropped. He actually wriggled out of handcuffs. Son of a bitch. And he did not share with many of the others very special, private, illegal, felonious, self-destructive things he shared with me, and I engaged with him. Oi, that left me at both an advantage and a disadvantage for quite some time adding to the stress level. I felt the need to escape from the constrictive, boorish, yet simultaneously undefined contours of the unwanted life I was living. To reiterate, or better yet clarify, I blundered or stumbled or plunked, plopped, or whatever you want to call it, into an ongoing drug operation and felt naive to learn that his job cooking, which he was extremely good at, was merely a cover for his drug operation, which was how he funded his titanic drug consumption. But every night he gave me an eight ball to a quarter ounce, free. Never asked for a cent. Would have been insulted if I offered him money, me. I was being given rock star potency coke for free, every night. One time they tried to get me to freebase, but that is where I drew the line. That was my line in the sand. That was my hard stop. That was my hill to die on, as is now popular to say. I was immersed in a misadventure of venal atrocities and dishonest living. 
Day after day and night after night was an endless parade of drug dealers, junkies, and people in various forms of prison release, whether they were in bail or ex-cons, on parole or pending sentences. Aspects of their fates were on the line and in a static condition until determinations were met and they continued to come over to the place and use cocaine. They freebased. They snorted. They lined their gums. They chattered away. They swooned. They drank. They smoked insane amounts of the best weed I ever smoked myself, and they never stopped coming over, and I freely snorted along with them. The delusional state you induce yourself into while using cocaine does a number of things. It makes you believe fantastic, unreal thoughts. It makes you a liar. There are no moments of devastating clarity or anything approaching insight. You become deluded. It makes you dependent on it immediately. It dominates your life. You become a slave to cocaine. You don't seem to mind the character or lack of character in people you surround yourself with. You take notice of odd aspects of other people that most of us simply pay no mind to. You realize that the people who are visiting pay close attention to your routines and remember entries, exits, windows, doors, and how secure they all are. We had a steady stream of visitors. As I stayed there and spiraled down to the depths of hell I never imagined existed, I learned and heard of the drug addiction and the stories about living in Santa Cruz, California. From an apartment in town to a mansion in the hills, he said he had been a guerrilla pot farmer, which at the time was a pot farmer who grew, specifically in his case, Sensimilla, and he grew it on government land, a crime on top of a crime. I took everything with a grain of salt, but there I was, snorting insane amounts of extremely potent cocaine for free every night. <laughs> I was regaled with stories. One of the housemates was working a job as a bill collector and harassing people somewhere in an office space type of business campus on Long Island. He also went through six Burns-O-Matic propane blowtorches each month due to his freebasing. Yes, six. Six propane blowtorches a month. He nailed, and this was in the 80s, pre-internet era and pre-blackout curtains for the home, two blankets over the windows in his bedroom to prevent light from penetrating the sanctum of his room. It was dark in there in more ways than one. He looked awful all the time and had a mercurial volcanic temperament. He was disturbed and addicted. Seriously. I also learned that his brother was convicted of operating a drug ring in upstate New York and was sentenced to, I believe, 10 to 20 years in prison, while his mother was also convicted and sentenced to 4 to 10 years for her role in the enterprise. I also recall that for some reason, we spent the evening at his mother's filthy home on Long Island on the 4th of July and watched the fireworks on television. It was extremely odd to me to see these criminal drug addicts become moved at the patriotic tone of the aerial camera work displaying the musically synced fireworks display, and they became particularly moved while the television showed the Statue of Liberty. That just stuck with me as so out of context for these nihilistic junkies. They were just about moved to tears. What the hell is I doing with these people? Another one of their comrades was someone who supposedly took the fall for all three of them. My friend, the free baser with the blankets nailed over the windows, 
and this guy who came from a family with an odd preoccupation with owls. Owls. He went to his parents' house one day and they had taxidermist stuffed owls all over the house. That was, to say the least, very strange. Owls, large and small, dead, stuffed, in cages and clamped to wrought iron railings, on top of cabinets and sitting on tables. Owls. I know or knew people who had a preoccupation with ducks, pigs, elephants, and all sorts of figurines from small glass and porcelain, crystal, pottery, rugs, pillows, throws, clothing, jewelry, to plushies, to wall art, to furniture, to phones, to wallpaper, you name it. But this guy lived in a world of stuffed owls. I was told that this guy took the fall for selling 40,000 hits of acid to a federal law enforcement agent outside of a Grateful Dead concert somewhere upstate and was convicted, sentenced, and served three years on, I think, a 19 to 25-year sentence. There were vague references to prison rape as well. The guy's personality put me in mind of the drug-addled offspring of a number of characters played by the legendary actor Fred Clark. You might remember him as Mr. Babcock in Anti-Mame. Try to think of a slightly watered-down ex-con drug addict version of him with non-stop, suspicious, ultimately feckless hostility towards the human race. He was paroled and had to live with his parents, and I think they weren't too ethically code-bound either. Part of the condition of his release was that he had to attend law school for some reason. This guy was a heavier cocaine user than both of the guys I was living with, and he somehow managed to pass mandatory drug tests. And if he failed one, he would be instantly remanded back to prison to serve the remainder of his sentence. He had to be bribing someone somewhere along the line. He was a nightly visitor to the place we lived where the drug selling and using was ongoing. After my friend and the freebaser cut as much coke out of a $5,000 stash, it became worthless. About 80 to 90% was cut and they knew they were in for some trouble and quite uncharacteristically went out to see Ferris Bueller's day off. I was not invited. I did not go along and I stayed at the house. Somewhere between their going out and before the movie ended, the owl guy called up and I answered. He was extremely angry. He told me that if I had anything of value in the house, I needed to take it out with me as I left because he was coming over to burn the place down. It seems my comrades knew they had run afoul of him, were quite aware of their cardinal sin, and went out to the movies to avoid confrontation, leaving me there, the naive dipshit that I was, to bear the brunt of the burden. Upon their arrival home, I related the story and the call and the threat. They tut-tutted and rolled their eyes. They had been working on a backup plan the whole time they were at the movies, so by the time they got home, they actually had a plan B and a plan C. When the owl guy finally showed up, enraged, he showed me the bag of mostly cut, which was worthless, and asked me, Pinocchio, the idiot, how I thought he felt. I stammered and said something to the effect that it could not be good. The other boys were reprimanded and my friend wound up agreeing to be extorted into acting as a drug mule on a trip to and from Santa Cruz at harvest time. This was the fall of the same year. He knew he was in danger of being arrested upon arrival and at any time while he was there, but he had no choice. This was when I learned of the suitcase switching scam they employed to prevent being arrested by law enforcement after their baggage was sniffed by drug sniffing dogs. 
I will get to that. While he was back in his former mansion in the hills of Santa Cruz, still occupied by his friends, and this all seemed a bit too outer spurred deadhead Manson family meets Chichin Changish, but they all lived together growing weed. The high point of this trip, as I remember it, was when my friend was photographed laying on the floor in a makeshift sarcophagus of weed buds with just his face peering out with a big smile on it. He then had to return to New York with a suitcase filled with not only newly harvested weed, but a large bag of Dilaudid, the pharmaceutical opioid given to cancer patients, an even larger bag of psychedelic mushrooms and other pills I never learned anything about. The only thing in life that is consistent and abstractly viewed is change. Nothing that remains static can endure. Even monuments intended to be eternal need constant maintenance. So change is going to come. And if you got demons, boy, they compound the impact of change. Most of the time you don't realize it is happening. And if you do receive the change you wanted, you don't realize that it is only 5% of what comes with the change. The rest is part of the watch out, you might get what you're after thing, because so much you have not anticipated or are equipped to deal with, it can be overwhelming. <sighs> and even crush you in the wave of upheaval or aftermath of the change. I have seen that with smart, high-caliber, high-performing, well-intentioned people doing their best to manage their teams and advance their careers. I have also seen it with lowlifes who live for the next gratifying sensation. That, in my experience, has never ended well. And who wants to be mostly forgotten and only remembered as a fuck-up who could not control their basest desires? End of part three. Part four coming soon. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Peace out.